Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. I was actually reminded recently about a story from the 2004 Olympics. There was an American air rifle shooter, Matt Emmons, who many believe is the best shooter in the world. Uh, He was going into the final shot to win the Olympic gold medal. All he needed to do was hit the target, and he was going to win anywhere on the target. Didn't need to hit a bullseye anywhere. He took aim. He hit the bullseye, but it wasn't the right target. He shot at the wrong target. He got zero points. He went from winning the gold to eighth place in one shot. The story reminds us of how even the very best of us can hit the wrong target. And that's part of the reason we're starting this new series titled Intentional Today, talking about doing life more deliberately, more consciously, on purpose. We've just got done with a deep dive into Romans. It's given us a lot of incredible theology, understanding of the gospel, and now we want to take some time to focus on how to walk this Christian life out intentionally, practically addressing a number of questions. The question's like, what's the target I'm really going for? Am I, am I really living my life in the way God is leading me to live? Am I intentionally pursuing God's best, or am I just going through life doing whatever comes up next? Uh, the way Jeremy, Wendy, and I uh, wanted to do this series was we wanted to take a look at some of the lesser-known uh, followers of God in the Bible. Because sometimes I think when we look at the big, larger-than-life characters like Paul, we think, well, that's Paul, you know? His calling, his goals are so big, I can't relate to that. The reality is most of us are not going to be world famous. In fact, most of us are not going to be even famous in our own community. And that's okay. We just want to live life the way God has called us to live in all of its goodness. And the Bible is packed full of unknown heroes. Jesus regularly celebrated people whose names we will never know. The widow of two mites, these two little coins that were worth about a penny, Jesus turns her story into this motivating thing about deep, dedicated faith and generosity. Or the four men who airlifted the paralytic to get to, uh, to, uh, to be healed by Jesus. Or how about the little boy who gave five loaves and two fishes? We don't know their names. See, God loves ordinary people like you and I and wants us to make a difference for him in this life. You've probably heard... This a million times, but you're going to hear it again. There is no one else like you. Despite it feeling cliche, it is based on the truth that God has uniquely created every single one of you. The truth is no one can take your place. You are invaluable. You are irreplaceable. You have a part to play in the story that God is writing in our world. Now, maybe because it's football season, like this image came to mind about, you know, how each one of us has this role in moving the ball of God's story down the field. And it kind of reminded me of a story of an eight-year-old boy. He was trying out for football the first time he'd ever played football. On his way to his first practice, his dad was talking to him in the car. He said, well, the coach is likely going to make you be a lineman, son. And he said, the truth is no eight-year-old wants to be a lineman. They all want to be the quarterback, the running back, the receiver, wherever there's glory, that's what they want to be. But the dad went on and told his, his son this. He said, the linemen are really important because they block for all the other players. 
The linemen don't get to carry the ball. They don't throw passes. But if the linemen do their job, the guys carrying the ball can make the touchdowns. Otherwise, they can't. And sure enough, 30 minutes into the practice, the coach starts to line them up in their positions, and he told the boy, I want you to be a lineman. The little boy got down, and he looked over at his dad sitting on the side, gave him a big smile and a thumbs up. He was thrilled to be a lineman. Maybe what an early 20th century Bible teacher and World War I military chaplain said will drive, the home, drive home the point even more, to live intentional lives even better. Oswald Chambers, in my utmost for his highest, writes, it is ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets, among ordinary people. And this is not something we learn in five minutes. So what are these big ordinary things that we need to be exceptional at? That's really what we're looking at in this intentional series, how God's story was propelled by lesser-known people in the Bible who lived out these key, ordinary, important things leading us to know how we also can live our lives in a way that helps us carry the ball down the field and propel God's story and goodness more in this world. Because God has and continues to use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for His glory. Today we're going to focus on a guy named Amos. Well, many of you may have heard about Amos. He's not as unknown as some of the other people we'll talk about, yet he still is one of the minor prophets, one of the shorter books in the Bible. Before we learn more about his character, I want to take a little bit of time to review and think how we think about our gifts. Because how we move the ball further down the field is by being aware and making the most out of the talents and gifts that God has given us, by giving those gifts that God has given us back to God. Here are a few thoughts based on what we just learned in Romans 12. Paul said, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I love how the Message Bible paraphrases this. It says, So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That makes this feel a lot more doable, doesn't it? Then Paul goes on to talk about how everyone has gifts. And if you know your grammar, he's going to use some really interesting adverbs in verse 8. He says, if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, the Greek word for generously means the strong desire to live generously. It is a concentrated, singular focus and purpose. We are intent and focused on being generous, so much so that we'll go the extra mile to live that way. As Paul goes on, the Greek word for diligently means give your best. Pay attention to detail, follow through, whatever you do, do it with excellence. And the Greek word cheerfully means this eager willingness. You have no reluctance at all. You have a great attitude and a great great initiative in life because it is your pleasure to serve. 
So what the Bible is saying is we live out our gifts and we do them with excellence. It's about giving God your best, everything you've got, bringing your A game to living this life wherever you are at and in whatever situation you are doing stuff in. Now, let me pause here for just a second because I think when we say bringing your A game and stuff like that, it kind of lays this layer of performance pressure on relationship with God. And for some of you, you are already exhausted. You are already driven, trying to give your best in everything you do. And you don't need to feel like you have to do more in life. Now, I know doing things with excellence may also sound like a contradiction because we spent the first few months of this year talking about how we need to take hurry out of our lives and we need to practice Sabbath and habits of solitude and silence as well. We need to create space in our lives rather than trying to pack them so much so that we can be healthy people. Now, those habits are essentially, are, are essential habits and they don't actually have to contradict giving God our best effort. The point is make sure we're being wise on how we spend our energy and our attitude and how we live. It's more about how are we doing with our work, our school, our relationships. How are we doing with our job when we have a really bad boss or it's difficult or it's a boring environment? Do we still give our best? And what Romans tells us to do is, yes, bring your best because we're not working for our boss or we're not working even for ourselves. We are working for God, giving our gifts and our talents that he's given us back to him by serving others. We work, we live, we do all that we do for an audience of one. And this is the ordinary, essential thing that we're going to focus on today. You do your best with what you have and where you are. It's about being faithful and fruitful right where you are planted in life. I think Martin Luther King Jr. may have said it best. He said, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who sweeped his job well. And I'm happy I'm through that. <laughs> Each one of us is accountable to God for the time and talents he has given us. So as Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. We do what we do for God, and we live for an audience of one. Now, most of us, whether we're aware of it or not, do things for an audience of some person or persons. The question is not whether we are doing things for an audience. The question is, which audience are we working and living for? Do we really live our lives for God as the first and foremost audience we care about? I mean, just think about the last time you made a decision. Whose reaction to your choice did you think about most? 
See, it's easy to be too concerned about what others think of us rather than what God thinks. Yet according to Jesus, this is why the Jews missed seeing Jesus as a Messiah. They cared more about the opinions of the Pharisees than they did about seeing and seeking God. Their focus of, of, of having, was having an audience other than God made it impossible for them to actually grasp who Jesus was. John comments in his gospel on it this way. He says, yet at the same time, many even among leaders believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. See, part of what this means is when we choose people or even our own expectations as the audience over God, we're not actually able to discern God's will clearly and understand what he's actually calling us to do and see his goodness working all around us. Let's jump into seeing a little bit more who Amos is and how he lived intentionally focused on an audience of one. And we're going to have to talk a little bit about Amos's message, which is not the main point, but we need to give, the, we need to give enough of the message so you get the main point at the end. And we're going to see in this how Amos significantly moved the gospel, the ball, further down the field, even though he never really saw it in his own lifetime. One of the main things that draws me to Amos as a character is he's not like other prophets. He is not from a family of prophets or priests or ruler or the ruling class. The Bible tells us Amos was a normal blue-collar kind of guy. He was a shepherd. And he was a dresser who tended the field of sycamore trees. And as much as we value and know we need training for ministry, Amos had no training. He didn't go to seminary. He was simply working with his animals and trees. And God's spirit caused his spirit to become so burdened with what he saw around him that he couldn't stay silent anymore. He had to share his heart for the oppressed and the voiceless in Israel as the Spirit of God was stirring him to do. Amos is known for being one, if not the most hated prophet in Israel's history, which led him to being one of the most despised men in Israel of his day. And it's because he brought a message of warning during a time of great prosperity. See, it was around 800 B.C., Israel was still surging from the prosperity that they had gained under David and Solomon's rule. They were unchallenged and the dominant military power in the region. They controlled the trade routes through the Middle East, which had led to a financial boom. In other words, the stock market was fantastic. And they were at peace and prosperous like no other around. Now, Amos actually sees grave concerns. He comes from the southern kingdom of Judah and goes to the northern kingdom of Israel, which was richer and more powerful at the time, and warns them about financial disaster and military destruction that is to come because of their disobedience. So imagine for a minute Amos being in this crowd. He's already from the other tribe that they don't like, and he's already in the middle of this crowd. He's there during a national holiday celebration, and Amos stands up, in one of Israel's most sacred cities and proclaims the Lord's judgment on, he starts by proclaiming it on the six nations around Israel. Well, that was really well received. Israel loved to hear about the sins of their pagan neighbors, their competing pagan neighbors, and how God was going to punish the wicked. 
Amos is hearing them shout probably at that moment, Preach it! Amen, brother! After drawing them in, Amos suddenly pivots. And he starts talking about Israel's sin and the consequences. And this didn't go over so well. Now, speaking of Israel's sin, Amos says, They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. And these are just some of the sins Israel is involved in. Yet there was no talking in his his discussion about stealing or corruption or murder. In fact, in Amos's message, God's main concern was about injustice in that they had turned away from the poor. They lived lives of ease and comfort and luxury in the face of the suffering of others. The book of Amos is essentially one extended sermon in which Amos talks about God's anger against injustice in the world. And Amos continues telling Israel the consequences they'll face because they of their repeated ongoing sins. He says, The archer will not stand his ground. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. So Israel's archers were a source of pride. Their army was a source of pride, fearless, devastating. Saying they'll flee away is like if we were today, say your Navy SEALs will ball up in a fetal position and cry for their mamas. Amos goes on to say, I will tear down the winter houses along with the summer houses. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, declares the Lord. What this shows us is it shows us how prosperous Israel was. They had luxurious houses, summer houses, winter houses. They were secure from financial disaster. So the idea of ruin was unrealistic. They felt like they were safe from harm. Their portfolios were well-maintained. They had plenty of money and plenty of land, in the, and they, just, they were going well. Yet they were apathetic toward those who suffered. There was no talk about stealing or corruption or murder again. God's concern was about the injustice that they turned away from the poor. They lived lives of ease and comfort, luxury in the face of the suffering of others. In the Old Testament, the words justice and righteousness go hand in hand. And Jesus summarized this idea of Old Testament justice and righteousness by saying it this way. He said, love others as you have loved yourself. Meaning, this call to righteousness and justice is more than just being fair. You leverage your position and power and your privilege and your personal wealth to help others in the community. I say this because we often equate helping the needy with charity, with giving a handout. If you don't give, people will say you're just stingy, right? We all love to give. And we've given generously through End Poverty Plus just recently. But what God is communicating is that failing to help the poor is an injustice, a more serious thing. The word justice occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament in the text you see there are four classes of people brought up. It talks about widows and orphans and foreigners and the poor. Being just and righteous people, we are to be involved helping these groups of people. Tim Keller says it this way, The just person in the Old Testament is one who sees his or her resources as a gift they've been given to steward for the benefit of the whole community. Now, Keller's not talking about some forced Marxist redistribution. This is not 
addressing either in Keller or in Amos that has nothing to do with the government. He's not that there's no addressing what government should be or shouldn't be. This is talking about the people of God and the attitude believers need to have about their own privilege and wealth. Because with the position of privilege and power and with wealth, God also gives responsibility to leverage it for those who he's trying to reach who have less. Amos and God were fed up with the wealthy, taking whatever they could at the expense of the poor and having the attitude, they just need to work harder. So the Spirit of God focused on the privileged people of Israel and the people who had no love for their neighbor, who took advantage of others, and who only looked out for their own concerns. Now hear me. It's not that God doesn't want prosperity. What God is concerned with is how we use the prosperity he gives us. In fact, most infuriating to God and Amos is that the Israelites did these sins while remaining fervent in their religious behaviors. They came to the church or the temple acting like nothing was wrong. It was like the prophet Isaiah said, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They came to church, sang songs, did all the religious festivals, and yet they weren't living the ordinary everyday things that intentionally kept their hearts close to God, which led God to saying through Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your worship that you give to me, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Ouch. The question is, how does that hit us today? We might get all excited if I talked about the secularist agenda in our media and our educational systems. I could talk about the activist judges misusing their positions in our countries to curtail religious freedoms, and many would go, amen. I could talk about fatherlessness in certain uh, communities. I could talk about a lack of morality in Hollywood. I can talk about all those bad things, yet what Amos's main point is is he's holding God's people accountable for the ill-treatment of others and their neglect of God's purpose in giving them wealth and power. It repeatedly points out the failure of the people to fully embrace God's idea of justice. They were selling off needy people for good. Now, if we were trying to translate that into our world today, that would say we were trying to really market in such manipulative ways that we create desire and need for more so that people will buy more than they can have and we have to give them loans that they can't afford that aren't wise for them so that, and then they eventually can't pay us back. And in Israel's day, when they couldn't pay back, they would throw them in debtor's slavery, taking an advantage of the helpless, the poor, to make a buck. They had lost the concept of caring for one another and community because they were so focused on a rugged individualism that focused them on the strength of their own bank accounts. Get what you can to each his own. I earned it. But they forgot that God gave them everything they have. Today we have Christians who live in luxury while people around them perish. The average Christian gives 2.4% of their income to God in America. Many people don't give anything. 
What's interesting is the richer you get, typically, by the studies show, the less percentage-wise you give. Even though your check may be larger, you're actually less generous than you used to be because you're giving a smaller portion of your income the more generous, the more rich you get. Studies also show that those who make less are more likely to tithe, meaning, give, meaning giving 10% of their income to God's word, giving a far larger portion of their income away. Again, there is nothing immoral about being in a position of privilege and wealth. You are not to feel guilty about having wealth. But justice and God's call on your life require that you use that position of privilege to help empower those who currently are not doing as well financially or not doing as well in their work or their health or their life or whatever else is going on that is troubling in their lives. Now that's enough of Amos's core message. That's not really the main point of today. Let's bring it back to Amos himself. Because today I want, to, I want this to be far more than just Amos's message. God calls and uses this quiet, ordinary shepherd to carry a message of judgment to the Israelites and a warning to us. This poor, blue-collar, probably less than average educated man goes to the wealthy educated of the country and God uses him to speak powerfully. So think about that. Think about what that must have been like. What kind of a person is so intentional to leave his home and be bold enough to share to an entire country what was wrong in their lives? To speak truth regardless of what others may think, regardless of the consequences. There's an intentional aspect to Amos' life that he lives for an audience of one. I have to ask myself and ask us, would I be willing to do for God what Amos did, to be so despised and rejected to bring a message? How would I feel to be the most despised person of all of Israel? How, how do we walk this out? Now, first, let, let's point out again that some of the greatest contributions in church history have come through ordinary people like Amos. They may seem bigger in life, maybe at the end of their life, some of them do, but they began very, very ordinary. One of these people in history is William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He was a lay person. He wasn't trained for ministry. And he's done more to mobilize the evangelical church to care for the poor in urban centers than anyone in all of history. Booth was born in poverty in 1829 in England. His father died when he was 14, making him the person who provided for the family. At 15, he was invited to a church where he became a Christian. And he wrote in his diary after that, he said, God shall have all there is of William Booth. Booth lived when there was so many social problems. If you remember history, it was the onset of the Industrial Revolution, child labor, long days, harsh conditions, horrible stuff going on. Most established churches among the upper and middle classes were unwilling to be involved to help the poor. But Booth dedicated his entire life and mission to ministering to the poor. He learned and was known for saying, you cannot warm the hearts of people with God's love if they have an empty stomach and cold feet. Eventually, Booth and his wife started the Salvation Army. Their meetings were accessible to those who would never dare attend a conventional church. 
the, here the poor received food and clothing and sang songs and listened to testimonies and heard preachers who used ordinary language that they could understand. They were given acceptance. Any judgment was about sin, but it was never about the person or one's social status. And much like Amos, Booth faced opposition from churches and people all around. Yet despite the resistance, the Salvation Army expanded to the U.S., to Canada, to Europe, to Australia, allowing Booth to have this platform to give input into social causes worldwide. In fact, when he died in 1912, 150,000 people filed by his casket and 40,000 people, including Queen Mary, attended his funeral. They had given him the title, the prophet of the poor. And yet, like Amos, Booth kept true to what he wrote in his diary as a 15-year-old, that he wanted to give God all of himself. The ordinary man lived intentionally focused upon an audience of one. As seen in these words penned later in his life, he said, If there's anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. I guess the challenge today and the, the invitation is, let's be one of these ordinary people who focus on intentionally living for an audience of one. Take time to ask yourself, who do I perform for? Whose approval do I seek? Who is my audience? Maybe an example of an earthly father will help in seeing how to live more intentionally for an audience of one. You may recall Serena Williams in 2002 won her very first Wimbledon tennis tournament. Afterwards, a reporter asked her, if it bothered her that many of the English fans were cheering against her. And she politely said, no, she understood. There have been people rooting against her all of her life. She understood that, and yet she wanted to win for herself. And then then she paused and she added this. She said, besides, my dad was sitting in those stands, and I knew he was rooting for me, and I wanted to please him. And here's the point. Your Father God is sitting in the stands cheering for you because when it's all said and done, there is only one vote, one voice that really counts. Live life in a way that intentionally echoes who, how Jesus lived. And Jesus told us explicitly how he lived when he said, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. God has also sent you. And I pray that we would first and foremost please God with our words and our actions. And I want you to take a moment and let His Holy Spirit bring to your mind throughout today, right now and throughout today, any place where you need an attitude check or a refocus check. In whatever situation you are in, whatever you do, do it for an audience of one. It doesn't matter if your boss is good or bad. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid what you're worth or not. Do whatever you do for an audience of one with excellence. The way you work, in your actions, in your attitude, and in your words, you represent God to others. 
And God has called you to whatever work setting or community setting you live in to be His voice and a representative of Him in all that you do. Whether people accept Him through the words you share or not is not your responsibility. But like Amos, God has called each of us to speak for Him and work in a way that honors Him in all that we do so that people around might have an opportunity to encounter Him as well. Now, understand, I understand, if you know Amos' story, even from what we said today, Amos spoke really harshly, really bluntly. But we need to understand this in the context of history too. Amos was a prophet God sent after many other prophets were not listened to. So God sends Amos to be this blunt, I'm going to make it really clear since you haven't listened to anybody else, I'm going to make it really clear and strong so you'd have no excuse to not understand what I'm saying. Now, we're not always going to be that voice. God may not call us to be that voice. In fact, I would work from a point where we assume that God is not wanting us to speak that bluntly and harshly, that he rather wants us to speak winsomely unless he clearly, clearly, clearly confirms we should speak otherwise. So remember, you play a role in bringing the ball down the field to propel God's incredible story in this life. Will you live your life for an audience of one? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I can't help feel just the tension that this message brings for me, for all of us in the room. Because we all have audiences that we're playing to. We all have voices in our heads. We have voices around us, people around us, whether it's a spouse or a boss or a parent or a person we admire or a, a, a co-worker. Or we've got people that we're, we're trying to play to. And Lord, I, I know that for me, when I, I look at that, that, that makes pressure. That, that feels like pressure to perform. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would come to us and that you would free us from all of that pressure. Because really, Lord, when we live for you alone, you've already loved us. You've already forgiven us. You've already accepted us perfectly, fully, for eternity. There's no pressure. We get to live for you, the God who is cheering for us, the God who is with us, coming to us, pursuing us, empowering us by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that all of us would learn to live more centered in that place of freedom and that we would be free of all the other performance anxiety that we deal with so often, the approval that we seek so often. So Holy Spirit, even now as we turn our hearts to sing and celebrate and worship you and how you bring victory in our life, would you, uh, would you by your spirit just bring that freedom to trust your victory in our lives, to trust your presence with us, and to help us focus only on you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.